This is Season 1, Episode 2 of Interesting Conversations. I'm your host, Craig Burgess, and today I'm talking to someone I'm really excited to talk about. He's called Bob Phillips, and he's a researcher and a doctor specialising in child cancers. In this fascinating episode, we talk about everything, really, to do with health, cancer, research, truth and lies in research, things you should do to extend your life, training blood cells, yes, training blood cells, and that topic completely fascinated me, drug research, the ketogenic diet, and why we enjoy being dizzy and feeling sick as a kid, but we don't enjoy it when we're an adult. This conversation blew my mind in so many ways, I learned so much from this conversation. I'm going to leave it there and just let you enjoy it. So here goes. This is season one, episode two of Interesting Conversations with Bob Phillips, starting right now. So let's start with the most important question. Who are you and what do you do? Hello, my name is Bob Phillips. I work as a part-time children's cancer doctor and part-time researcher where I'm funded by the National Institute for Health Research, the NIHR, and I work at the Centre for Reviews and Dissemination at the University of York and Leeds Children's Hospital in the Department of Paediatric Oncology and Haematology, which are a whole set of massively sort of meh words, aren't they? Um, so what I actually do is I spend sort of half my life working as you'd expect like a, a normal doctor to do who works in a hospital. And I work with children and young people, that's up to about the age of 18, 19, who have a cancer of some sort um, or very occasionally a sort of a cancer-like condition, so one that needs treating in the same way, but via stupid official definitions isn't, isn't a cancer as such. And then the other half of my life I do research, and the research is mainly about making things better for children, primarily children and young people with cancer, but also other children and young people. And as a part of doing that research, what we also do in sort of academia generally is we don't just do research but we do research on research. So we try and make the methods of doing the research better and more efficient and more likely to give us a true answer and that sort of thing. So it's a sort of mishmash of all that type of stuff. You said something really interesting already there about cancer-type diseases that aren't cancer but get treated like cancer. Yeah. So so what are those kind of things? Right, so there's, there's stuff that hopefully no one will have ever heard of. So the sort of classic example would be something called Langerhans cell histiocytosis, no, I've never heard of that. No, 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 no normal sane person has. Um, because it's got such a ridiculous name, it gets called LCH just because it's too long to call it anything else. A cancer, and cancer's a, a name really for a bucket load of diseases, it's not, it's not the same thing. A cancer is a disease where a cell has essentially lost its control mechanism. So it grows too fast, and that's because either the accelerator is pressed down or the brake has broken. Uh, so it's, it's growing too quickly, it doesn't know when to stop, and it also has the ability to break away from where it should be and wander off to other places in the body. Now, LCH, Langerhans cell histiocytosis, is where some of your normal, slightly weird immune cells that live towards the outside of your body, histiocytes, get horribly overexcited. 
what they normally do is they work to repair things. So where you've had a stitch or an injury or been hit by a brick or something, they'll go in and they'll, they'll, they'll help coordinate the response to rebuild the bit of the body that's been a bit battered. In LCH, they get horribly overexcited and they just start repairing and eating things and, and chewing things up. And then they call in all their friends and, and they all come in and, and they all do things and, and it just gets really, really daft. They, they, they've got this, this over-response that goes on. Now, that as an issue is problematic because then you're getting an area of the body that's being attacked in, in, in a sense by itself. Now... For many, many people, and children primarily with LCH, the, the thing to do is to, to take a biopsy, so, so a small bit of it gets taken out. Almost by, by doing that external injury to the site that is over-enthusiastic, the cells then regain a sense of perspective. I, I don't know whether they actually do, but that's what it <laughs> seems like. And they go, oh, uh, we were a bit daft, weren't we? We'll, we'll, we'll just stop then. Um, but sometimes it's not just in one place in the body, but it's all over the body. And so rather than being able to go in and pick up every single one of the 832 different areas with a needle, what you've got to do instead is give them a sort of a, a chemical slap. And in a sense, that's what chemotherapy would do in that situation. So that then leads to thinking, well, what does chemotherapy do and what is chemotherapy? And again, it's a bucket word. It, it's not our thing. It's a whole load of different medicines. And traditionally, we use it to mean cytotoxic chemotherapy. So that is a medicine, and that might be a medicine as in, you know, calpo type thing, a, a liquid medicine. It might be a tablet. It might mean injection into your muscle, like an immunization type of thing, so a proper injection, or an injection into a vein, or a drip that goes in over the many, you know, there's loads of different forms of it. But what it does is it goes in, and it goes into the cells that grow very quickly. So in LCH, it will go into these over-enthusiastic histiocytes, give them a bit of a slap and get them to try and stop doing it. Because of the rules of what is a cancer, LCH isn't a cancer because it's not a single cell that has grown sort of out of control, a clonal disease that has then lost and its marbles and gone wandering around the body. But effectively, it acts like a cancer. And there's a similar thing with some brain tumours, where a brain tumour, if it's growing and growing and growing inside the closed sort of skull, the closed box of your skull, it will cause big problems. And that's regardless of the fact whether it's got the ability to, to pop off and wander somewhere else in the body. And if it hasn't got that ability, it isn't officially a cancer, but it's acting like a cancer. So often people will talk about cancers and brain tumours to try and get around this definitional aspect. So Sophie was going to talk about traditional cancer and we was going to try and to explain it to a stupid person like me. Is that what you'd effectively call it, a, a clonal disease? It, it is sort of in that most cancers we think of as starting from one cell, so the body's made up of millions and millions and millions of cells, and one of them has managed to bugger up its controls, it, its genetic code, and that has then led to further spelling mistakes and further spelling mistakes within it that have then led to the situation of uncontrolled proliferation. Or it, it just goes too quick. Basically, compound errors. 
So you have you have a tiny error, and then that gets replicated, and that becomes a bigger error, and then it gets replicated again. It becomes a bigger error. Yeah, and over and over and over like that. Yeah, that's that's mostly what happens. Very occasionally, they have a single error that just happens at a really critical part, uh, and that error then drives on the majority of that cancer type. But nearly every cancer type is is caused by compound errors, and and throughout it, we're, you know, it's almost cellular evolution because the ones where the error means that the cell dies off or doesn't replicate they they, they don't carry on so it's it, it's picked out for the ones that have the ability to both be good enough to survive but bad enough to not correct their errors um, so there's sort of a balance there so how many cancers is there that's been discovered that is, is defined as cancer uh, well, that's a, a an intriguing and uh, um, difficult question to answer. There is a list that the WHO has, has produced, and that's the one that we tend to work off, and then it's been uh, put into other classification systems, so the International Classification of Diseases, the ICD coding for cancers. They've got a couple of hundred different sorts of cancer codes there, but even within those, we know that that's probably not true. Um Take, for example, acute lymphoblastic leukaemia. That's the most common type of cancer type thing that happens to children. Is that commonly known as leukaemia? Is that the same thing? So it's a type of leukaemia. So if you hear that someone's kid's got leukaemia, the most likely thing that they've got is ALL, acute lymphoblastic leukaemia. But within that, we know that actually we can subdivide that into different sorts of types or flavours almost that have slightly different genetic drivers and some of those different genetic drivers then lead us to different types of treatments. Many of them don't, but some of them will do. Okay, so there's there's many types of leukaemia, many types of cancer and many types of things that aren't things that aren't cancer but are nearly considered cancer and they're kind of in that group. So how many new cancers are getting discovered yearly? I suppose what we're not doing is discovering new cancers. What we're doing is subdividing and classifying things that we had lumped together before and now we're beginning to split it out to more closely match treatment to the disease. So what we end up with is a more personalised or more risk stratified treatment the the ideal sort of way that we could treat all cancers would be to get rid of them for the first time once and forever but do that with minimal side effects and burden to the person that was experiencing that cancer so what you said there was interesting about classifying existing cancers because that leads me on to a question that I'd not planned but I want to ask so you, a, a lot of people say that cancers didn't used to exist. So they didn't exist 200 years ago, or they've increased. And people say um, 500, 800 years ago, people didn't get cancer. Is there any evidence that that's true? Or is that just that medical practice wasn't as good? People like you didn't exist to research them? So what, mm. what, what's the... The top line on yeah, that. No, it's complete bollocks. Cancer's <laughs> existed for, for thousands and thousands of years. There's mummified skeleton that's got an osteosarcoma, which is a type of bone tumour. And that's, you know, a few thousand years ago. Um, and, and we've got sort of Paleolithic 
evidence as well of, of, of tumours in bone. The, the reason why bone tumours survive is because they're the ones that sort of more easily get fossilised. Leukaemia, you know, isn't, isn't around because the blood goes away and gets munched by microbes and things. Um, but no, cancers have been with us forever. Generally speaking, I mean, I do kids' cancers, but, but, but if you take everybody up to the age of about 25, that's 2% of all cancers. 98% are in older people. Uh, and the genesis of cancers, how will they get created, probably varies between different people, but it certainly varies across the ages. So broadly speaking, the cancers that you get when you're an older person are wearing out cancers. Your cells have just grown and replicated so many times that finally they've made a spelling mistake. And you can do certain things to make those spelling mistakes more likely to happen. So you can batter them with smoke from smoking, or you can drink too much, or you can, you know, live next to an atomic bomb that explodes. You know, there are ways of of, of increasing that risk. Mostly, cancers that happen in children are nothing but bad luck. There is no cause for them as such uh, that we can yet identify. There are some very, very rare cancers, or very rare group of cancers, where what you have is a genetic predisposition. So somebody is born and in their genes, they have an error somewhere, often in the copy control genes. So the ones that make sure that when you've made your cell into two cells, the DNA is correctly spelled on both sides. If you've got an error in those genes, then that's more likely to to predispose you. Um, to develop cancers and there are other sorts of ways that that can happen as well is it right to say that we've all got cancer cells inside us um that's a thing that i struggle a bit with um it's sort of probably true if you take the sort of the, the 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 chance variation type argument that at any point in your 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 cells cycling over one of them will have turned and will have developed a thing that could if it wasn't caught and then had compound problems, go on to develop a cancer. To say everybody has cancer inside them at all times is pushing that a little bit too far, I think. I think the common thing that people say is that everybody's got cancerous cells and they're just waiting to be activated by some external force. Yeah, I'm not sure that's really true. Um, There are some cancers, take uh, cervical epithelial neoplasia, They've which, all got very catchy names, haven't they? Haven't they just? That's cervical cancer, um, which is a, a, a problem of, of people that have wombs, um, which is largely women, but not all. Um, the, the situation there is that what we know is that the cells on the cervix go through a series of mutations that then lead to a cancerous growth, and that's why the cervical screening programme, so having the smear tests, is an effective way of trying to stop that happening. We also know that a lot of those are driven by a particular set of viruses, HPV viruses. And now, for the last few years, we've been vaccinating against HPV in girls, and hopefully we'll extend that to boys as well, in order to reduce those cancers. I want to come back to that bad luck thing and lifestyle choices thing in a bit, but I'm still really curious about that thing you said. We we know cancers have existed for thousands of years, Mm. but can they be traced back to their origin? Is there a patient zero of cancer no it's it's not like an infectious disease it isn't that it gets passed between people or anything it's that your cells as they have grown have at some point one of your cells has copied incorrectly and that has led to the cancer developing 
So now people are saying cancer is uh, more rife. Mm-hmm. It's it's happening more and more. Is it one in three people say for 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 a normal aged person, not not children's cancer, but isn't it one in three? people are likely to get cancer. Yeah, so if you take an entire lifetime, one in three people is likely to get cancer in their lifetime. And has that increased in the last 20 years? So it might have done a little tiny bit. Now, part of this might be a reporting issue. So if you take the world at large and you look to see how cancer gets reported in different places, there are some places in the world, and the UK is part of it, that have really good registry systems so that every time a cancer gets diagnosed, it gets onto a database somewhere that counts the number of cancers that exist and the types of cancers that exist. There are other places in the world that don't have that type of registry system. And so there may be people who have cancer who never have it clocked up somewhere. Those then are places that have lower levels of cancer. Well, except it's not. It's lower levels of recorded cancer rather than lower levels of cancer. I mean, one example that's really, really clear from children's cancers is if you look across some areas of Africa, they have hardly any leukaemia. It's not, we think, from doing small-scale studies, it's not that they don't have leukaemia. It's that if you're in an area that has a lot of malaria, a lot of very severe infections, and a child comes in, looks terribly unwell and dies, then that child's died of infection or died of malaria. They may well have had leukaemia. It's just you've never got around to diagnosing it. Is there any areas that do have lower levels of cancer? Um, Not in children's cancer. It appears to be very much the same when you take into account the reporting biases, that is, the different levels of getting them down uh, in different places uh, between different areas. So it doesn't appear that way. There are areas that seem to have lower levels of adult cancers and if you take that I'm I'm not an expert in in adult cancers if you take that broadly it seems to fit largely with levels of smoking rather than anything else and also life expectancy so if people die they won't get cancer they've they've died before they develop it Um, but if you try and correct for age so you have age corrected indices um, then it seems to follow largely smoking at the moment because that was the the major reason why people developed cancers or uh, additional reason why people develop cancers. So coming back to child cancer, then you say it is, is it completely random? Is it complete luck that a child will get cancer? So of the cancers that children get, the majority of those cancers and the majority of people that develop them, it is due to bad luck. When we've done very, very detailed genetic profiling on a number of, of children, we've come back with the idea that somewhere around 1 in 20 of them may have a genetic predisposition. But that's probably overcalling it because we're looking very, very broadly at genetic predisposition syndromes. So these are things where you have a gene or a series of genes within you that make it more likely that you develop cancers. What we don't see is the environmental things. So living near power lines, what your mum drank when she was pregnant, whether or not you've been a child that exercised or didn't exercise uh, when they were small. They are not things that are linked to cancer in childhood. So it doesn't even seem to be affected by the parents' lifestyle previously? Not particularly. There are some data that would suggest there are some elements that are uh, involved with parental 
sort of lifestyle and pregnancy choices. But what we struggle with there is a big issue, and this is where my research thing comes in, uh, of what's called selective publication or publication bias. Now, if you imagine you look at the news, you don't see BBC Breaking tweeting out, Manchester Piccadilly Station is working perfectly well. It's fine. Don't stress about it. You only ever see Washington, uh, the tube station stopped. You only ever get the, the surprising. Now, even within academia, that still applies. So people may have a, a database of 500 different things that link into a set of children's cancer. They won't report 490 of these were completely irrelevant. Ten of them seem to be maybe a bit interesting. They'll go, we've found that eating coffee on a Tuesday whilst you're upside down causes cancer. And it might just be chance. There's so many things in the world that are just chance associations that you've found. Um, and you can see this happening when, when you play a board game with a family. There'll, there'll be one or two of people who have a bizarre way of throwing dice because once upon a time it led to them getting three doubles in a row or whatever it is. So part of what I do in research and part of what we do in this area is to try to pull together all of the research. So not just the obvious ones, but the unobvious studies as well. And by putting together that, that research across the whole of what's out there in what's called a systematic review, you can see what the true answer is likely to be. And you can also see, because of the way we understand chance, you can also see where things apparently haven't been published. And you set these idea of, of biased results coming through. And in putting it all together by synthesising the evidence, you get a clearer answer as to what we really know and what we really don't know uh, to take the research forward, but also to put into practice. Do people listen to that? Because to take, for example, if you have a particular, if, if you've been a researcher for 10 years, you have a particular world view that you look at things in a particular way, you think things happen in a particular way, your research has been involved in that for 10 years, and this, what you discover that that's not true. How does somebody react to that kind of thing? That varies between people quite strongly. <laughs> um, in, in medicine, like everywhere else, it is quite difficult to have established views challenged and changed but it does happen and over the last sort of 30 years or so there's been a growing acceptance that what we should do is not just what grandfather taught us but instead actually look at what is the evidence that's coming out what is the best scientific evidence and this is a process that we've sort of called evidence-based medicine and the idea is that when you have an uncertainty you go away and you pull out the best bits of scientific research to answer that question and really look at them in detail, appraise them, come up with what's the good things and bad things about it and then take all that sort of summarised evidence back to the patient or the family and then have a discussion about what that means and, and, and their take on what they think the risks and benefits and how they would value the side effects against the potentially good outcomes. The, the sort of the, the organisation that's done the best in promoting that worldwide is probably the Cochrane Collaboration, which was a voluntary effort and is now funded by a whole range of non-governmental, uh, non 
profit-making type organisations in order to really do these systematic reviews the best that we possibly can so that we have the, the best types of information to take on and, and do healthcare uh, in the most effective way. Do you, uh, what level do you get at when you think, yes, this is certain? Or do you take the, the more scientific view that nothing is ever certain and this is just the best information we've got right now and this may change next year, for example? Yeah, uh, and, and that very much depends um, where I'm sat. If I'm sat <laughs> in the university, then I'm very, very academic and philosophical and... Uh, very uh, sceptical. Everything. And, and if I'm sat in clinic, we've got to do something. And, and that something might be do nothing. It might be do something. And we have to know that what we're doing is right for now. But we also constantly know it's right for now. And that the nowness is important. In three years' time, we might find out something different. It doesn't mean we did the wrong thing three years ago, because it was right for then. And what we have within children's cancer is a massive network of putting trials and studies in place so that almost every child that has a diagnosis of cancer or cancer-like condition can be part of at least one study to try and make that care better. And it becomes an entirely normal part of life. When we do clinics, the, the, the multidisciplinary team, the gang that we get together to do those clinics, has research nurses, outreach nurses, clinic nurses, clinic doctors, ward people, pharmacists, social workers, psychologists, are all part of that gang that does that clinic. Research is embedded in it. If we didn't have research, we wouldn't be where we are. Um, and if you talk to the... I was going to say, if you talk to the patients, mostly if you talk to the patients, they'll goo and gar at you and and probably take you to to go and do some colouring in. Um, But if you talk to families, then they might well talk about how it's important to be part of this research because their kid's life is more likely to be saved because other people took part in that research. Mm. I just wonder how you sometimes deal with parents opinions on things because obviously they are usually Joe public and you may have made some groundbreaking research and some groundbreaking discoveries and you suggest a radical new idea to those parents and they may want the old thing that you know is not correct or not not as correct as you used to think it was and that must be quite a difficult thing to deal with from a doctor's side it's for a start, it's incredibly rare that you find a groundbreaking something. Nearly every groundbreaking thing that you see in the media turns out to be bollocks. So the vast majority of groundbreaking things are groundbreaking for two mice that lived in Germany or one mouse that lived in Italy that had a friend. Um, they're not actually groundbreaking. So most advancements are small. They're, they're 3 4 5% increases. The majority of people that we speak with and discuss stuff with are very aware of what uncertainty we're working with um, because myself and, and the vast majority of my colleagues are not sure about this. What we're sure about is what we think is right at the time. And there will be times, and it's often at the time where somebody has had their cancer come back, so relapse, or their cancer has proved to be resistant to the treatment that we're giving, refractory disease, 
that people search out for other things, miracle cures essentially. Um, and those discussions can be very hard. Um, it's difficult to have those conversations, but I will and do do so in the full knowledge that I can bring in my understanding and discuss with them what their understanding is and, and where those issues are and where the information is. Um, it is unusual to not be able to come to a conclusion that is comfortable for all of us, even if it's not the one that we would all go to directly. It must be quite difficult as well being a researcher and then being a doctor at the same time and balancing those those two completely opposing views. Yeah, you'd think so. Um, there's actually an awful lot greater synergy than you, you, you sort of see from... Well, most media representations of both doctors and uh, and researchers, to be fair, um, mostly doctors on the media seem to know exactly what's happening and be able to find things out and do it, and it's all right, um, which is not true. It's and almost like they've been prepped for that interview, or something. It, it is. It's like they've got a script, isn't it? <laughs> um, uh, whereas the uh, the researcher side. Uh, is, is usually somebody in a lab doing things that comes up with an amazing discovery using tools from 74 different labs often. And in a white coat, obviously. Always in a white coat. Yeah, often with fancy gloves and, and usually with, <laughs> with, with, with like colourful computer things in the background. Um, the, the, the synergy is, is that, that particularly within children's cancer, um, we are doing research all the time. We we are, are offering the opportunity for our, our patients, our families, to be part of those researches that are ongoing. And so we're very well aware of how, what the level of uncertainty is. And what I bring into the research side is an understanding that we need our research to be directed by the problems that are faced by our patients. And we need to be making better those things that the patients say are important to them. Um, take, for example, some work we've done in uh, nausea and vomiting caused primarily by chemotherapy. Because you can probably guess chemo is associated with feeling sick, nausea, and being sick, vomiting. Now, the vast majority of studies that have looked at different medicines to try and stop this happening or to try and treat it when it does happen have looked at vomiting, the act of throwing up, and they've really just counted the number of pukes that have splashed on the floor. That's what they're focused on. But if you go and talk to people in that situation, the thing they really, really hate is feeling sick. Not They don't like being sick, but feeling sick is worst. And, and, and many people might have possibly had too much to drink. And that feeling of knowing you're going to throw up and then the relief of actually having thrown up is what's experienced. But the research, because it's easier to count puke on the floor than it is to get an assessment of somebody's sickliness, has focused purely on puke. This then leads to us being unsure if the treatments are really directed at what's most important to the patients or not. And, and for years, people didn't even try and find out if you could ask a child, how sickly are you feeling? I mean, a group in Canada did about three or four years ago and showed it's really quite straightforward. You just show them from faces that look differently sickly. And kids of all sorts of backgrounds can point at, at these different faces and go, yeah, that's how sickly I'm feeling today. And so now we can move that forwards. But, but 
but without bringing the lumps of clinical practice and research together without I was going to say prioritizing one over the other it's not quite the right word but without thinking that one is one is the right way forwards then we won't make the best judgments and so you need the research to be integrated uh, into the care to, to make it effective and to make it efficient does all this sounds great but does this does this apply to the wider world of medicine so the wider world uh, of, of other kind of diseases other kind of issues you know just just generally because this all sounds like whenever somebody goes into hospital whatever's wrong with them this should be happening i would agree with you it should but it isn't um and and children's cancer cancer for adults is privileged in its access to research compared to other diseases uh, and, and other conditions as such now why that is is probably a massive historical backlog now and and, and why why some bits are better than others mm, better uh, why some bits are more research driven and more research integrated than others it might be that some areas have just had lots more money poured into them and have more chance of creating money for firms that make drugs for example it might be that it's because we children's cancer broadly grew up because we needed to get some trials together and we grew up around trials and so it's always been built into our DNA whereas other places haven't but but it is now leaking outwards take for example the care of very very small babies primarily ones that are too young to have really been born so the premature infants they now have an enormous amount of research and research availability over the last 10 to 15 years because people have brought themselves together in networks use this idea of integrating the research into the normal care of infants to try and make it better and that's a big effort from people leading it uh, and also cash being poured in largely from non-profit making organizations there isn't a vast amount of money to be had in saving premature babies but there is an enormous deal of public gain to be had and that's the nihr and various things like it sort of national government driven uh, non-governmental charity type organizations pouring money in to make it better i guess i guess some of it comes down to public perception doesn't it mm child cancer is one of the most horrific things you can think of especially if it's purely by luck that that child has has cancer and cancer in general is one of the most horrific things you can think of it's it's the the one thing that most people fear so it makes sense that that's getting the most the most effort to find the the best research methods and the best way of treating that and then other things like well I'm in hospital because I've got pneumonia or I've got measles is not the same level of public perception but it, the potential to advance the research in something as like pneumonia is still powerful to public health and reducing the load on the NHS and you know all those kind of things. Yeah I mean the, you're right that there are, there are some diseases that are in a sense sexy and they attract lots of things so stuff where there's a single genetic change is sexy because it's got the the power of mega medicine behind it stuff where you can put cute ball children on um, children's cancer 
you you can draw in a sort of a a, a sympathy vote to it, and and that's not to knock knock it to say that it doesn't deserve it because it's shit having cancer. It doesn't matter how old you are; it's really really bloody awful. But there are thousands and thousands of kids out there with brain degenerative diseases who can't speak, who poo themselves, who drool, who make bizarre noises, who smell. Those are not kids that will attract charitable funding to have research done on, for them, with them, on them, depending on how you look at it. There are a whole load of diseases that, that don't have the, the privilege of cancer in that sense. Now, what I would and do frequently argue for is not that we should be removing things from the cancer gang, but what we should be doing is aim to bring up everybody else to the sorts of ways that we treat children with cancer and young people with cancer. Yeah, I, w- I was going to say in in the thing that I do, so uh, I'm, I'm a web designer, a graphic designer, mostly digital type things. What often happens because there's a lot of open source projects out there so they're they're free things that you can download and edit and tweak and those things can be worked on by millions of people around the world it's fascinating to look at as a study itself but what often happens in those kind of things is that documentation is developed so that documentation is developed and then that allows anybody in the world to go to that and potentially use that on their projects or use that on that project I was just wondering, is is there any kind of ability for that in the medical world? Yeah, there absolutely is. And it's a really, really interesting sort of way that we've we've developed on, on a similar sort of thing. So there is a big move that there is a greater emphasis on collaborative projects. Now, within my sort of area of, of expertise and interest, it's this drawing together of studies from around the world in systematic review. Now, now, if you just come up with a, a review that says these trans- the, these agents, these drugs, these medicines are really good at stopping people being sick from cancer treatments, great, that's lovely. What you really need to do is make that accessible to everybody in the world. And so we have open access so that everybody can get in and can read it and it's freely available and freely uh, accessible. And the data is there that people can take out and they can see the methods. So it's sort of open source version of research. In itself, that doesn't really do any good. You've got to turn it then into a, a well-packaged product that a nurse on the front line or a doctor in the clinic can look at and go, okay, so Joe's coming in and he's having vincanactino. That means that he's on that lowest risk group there, so he just needs this drug here. And that a sort of simple step forwards to, to put it into practice. And, and with then you need the people to be aware of that and, and to put it into practice rather than it just sat there prettily on the shelf. So there's, there's an awful lot of, of what we could learn about sales and design and, uh, uh, and getting people to do stuff uh, from other people's expertise. Yeah, absolutely. But I think the biggest part of it is a culture shift, really, isn't it? Because, like, well, the NHS is a public sector organisation. We all know what people say about public sector organisations. They're, they're slow to move. Uh, it's a massive ship. There's people who aren't who aren't maybe as passionate about the job as as they should be and it, it's trying to get through to all that and often with no money as well or, or often with no way of achieving it so 
how do you get through that culture? Because everybody's got a different way of looking at things, haven't they? Yeah, and 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 we, we we're sort of thinking about people being led by example. So there are certainly many sorts of techniques around getting people who are very interested in an area to be seen as championing it, uh, horrible phrases, but going out and going, yeah, well, if we do something a bit different, if we do use this way of doing it, we'll see that we make a difference. And then doing little tiny sort of in-house projects to see that that makes a difference and improve things for other people. It, it, It is tricky, though, because... Even that sort of stuff that doesn't need money in the sense of it doesn't need you to buy a new bit of kit, it doesn't need you to pay for printing for things or, or whatever else, it still requires time. And, and and bribery helps as well. So if you turn up somewhere um, with cake or with drinks, then, then, then things work better. Um, things work better when you're going for the same thing and, and, and you've got food and drink to go with it. So so there's a little bit of resource needed and a lot, a, a lot, a vast amount of what happens is happens because of voluntary effort. People don't have lunch breaks. People don't have tea breaks. People don't go home on time. They put in that effort to make things better um, and it's a sort of a, an unacknowledged voluntary effort the RCN, the Royal College of Nursing, uh, recently sort of surveyed their membership and found that on average a nurse works an extra half to extra full shift every single week, never takes that time back, never charges it because they want things to be done right. And I wouldn't be surprised if it's the same with doctors as well. Can that continue? <laughs> so that that comes to the, that old thing about private healthcare and public healthcare, and, and you know where where do you join join uh, join the line, draw the line for that kind of thing? Because it, I know money's not the only issue, but if suddenly we had some kind of private healthcare, that makes the money issue go away, doesn't it? And it potentially brings more research around, more research possibilities. It might do, but it's unlikely to do so. When you look as to where the highest quality research seems to come from, it isn't from the private healthcare. Private healthcare focuses on profits, putting people through, doing the stuff that makes a difference and brings in cash. It doesn't focus on research because research gets done elsewhere. Half of the research that we do in children's cancer shows that our great new idea didn't work. Now that's a, that's right because if you're comparing two things, it should be that half the time the new thing doesn't work because if it was more than that, then you weren't really in equal balance in the first place, and you should probably have been doing that thing. Um, private healthcare doesn't drive on research; it doesn't necessarily drive on quality of care either. It certainly makes things look better. When you look across different places that have different ways of doing things, there are the fee-for-service systems where you get paid for what you do, and there are the tariff-more systems where you get paid for treating this treatment, you know, this condition or whatever. Fee-for-service systems have more things done. People do more things. 
those things are often unnecessary and potentially harmful. They're not the way of making a difference that really improves the health of a nation. Yeah, I, I remember fairly recently watching a, a documentary on Netflix called Prescription Thugs. I don't know if you've seen it. I haven't seen that one. It's uh, yeah, it's absolutely fascinating. It's all about the American healthcare industry and how it's all privatized, and the over reliance on prescription drugs. So they, I can't remember the figures exactly, but it was astronomically high the amount of people that are addicted to particular kinds of painkillers and it also went under the the other side of it, the doctors, the people prescribing these things and they're prescribing particular things because they get paid more commission to supply those. I I think you're completely right that when money becomes a factor like that, there's there's different incentives to find certain results. Massively. And within the UK, um, there's been a campaign um, called No Free Lunch, uh, the idea being that more in adult medicine than children's because there's not a lot of cash in children's, you don't take things from pharmaceutical representatives and company device manufacturers uh, You because there is no free lunch. If, if you start working with those people, you are less likely to take a completely unbiased view of their product um, and it's more difficult to say no if somebody's taken out you to dinner and, uh, and, and and taking you to an educational event that just happened to be an amazingly good speaker in London and you stayed overnight and it, it, it just makes it harder. Yeah, I, I want to just shift and come to something else that interests me about mindset. So I I think you've got the perfect way to to see this in young people because often in people who get cancer when they get older, they might think, oh, it's okay, I've had, I've had good innings or whatever, they've, they've lived a good life. And often you find that they may die because, because of the mindset or the way that they look at it. But with young people particularly, how influential, and has there been any research, how influential is mindset on cancer? So the power of positive thinking idea has been studied and has been looked at um, and has been shown not to be a of prognostic importance. So people that have a positive outset and say positive things are not more likely to survive than people who don't say that. What looks like the case is that people who take a positive approach to things may be more likely to take their medicines. They may be more likely to turn up when they have side effects. They may be more likely to come to appointments on time and complete the therapies that are being suggested. Those are the things that seem to improve the chance of survival rather than the mindset itself. It's also probably true, although the research is much, much weaker, that people with a positive approach have a better time, they have a better quality of life, and that sort of makes sense, doesn't it? You know, if you're not feeling quite as shit about it, then you're not feeling quite as shit end of Um, but it's not the mindset itself that seems to make a difference within children and young people what we have seen is that people who have um, severe affective disorders so that's that's basically sort of depression and severe anxiety that sort of thing are more likely to run into trouble with 
treatments, as in getting through the treatments, because they can't get them into themselves because of, of, of various features around that. Within our unit and within every unit in the UK, I would hope there are clinical psychologists, which are people that have a, a very high level of, of understanding of, of, of mind and, uh, and how to help people understand things. But actually, virtually every person that works in our unit has an influence on how people feel. Um, and some of those are trained at a level that is not quite clinical psychology, but, but have specific sort of broadly mental health, mental well-being training. But the majority of us do it in an untrained-ish way, um, but picking up things and, and putting it into into practice. That of the team, and if you take that to be everybody that works with us, there aren't people that are uninterested in what we do. So there's people who mainly do the cleaning in our area, um, but don't always work all the weekends. Um, and if you turn up on a Monday and it's been somebody that isn't one of our usual team that's been doing the cleaning, the crossness that they have, that it hasn't been done to the right standard, it's been done all right, but not quite good enough. And the, the fury that they're letting the kids who are immunosuppressed and might get infections, and they haven't been bothered to clean this properly. And they're massively committed to it, everything we do. The people that aren't particularly committed to it because of many, many reasons, and, and it's emotionally it's a difficult place to work at times, tend to find that they want to go and work somewhere else. And that's fine. It's not a judgment on them in that sense. It, it's that it's better to be elsewhere sometimes. So as the other than mindset, has there been any other, I'm not going to say homeopathy, but any other alternative treatments other than drugs that has been proved to have an impact on children's cancer. Yeah, yeah. Also, surgery and radiotherapy, which are not drug treatments, are hugely important in the treatment of many sorts of children's cancer. Um, there are there are many, many, many of them that, that will not be adequately treated if you just use drugs on their own. Um, there was a, a paper quite recently published in the last few days um, that showed when you look to see people that had used alternative treatments rather than people who had used sort of conventional cancer treatments, the people using alternative treatments were two and a half times more likely to die than those using conventional treatments. Wow. You saw this with Steve Jobs. I know he wasn't a child by any means, but you saw, you saw this with Steve Jobs that he actually shunned um, treatment for pancreatic cancer, was it, that he had? Uh, he went for some kind of fruit treatment, if I remember rightly, and it didn't work for him. And yeah, he shunned it until it was too late. But on on the diet thing, I want to talk about the ketogenic diet because I, I'm, I'm into health, I'm into fitness, and this I've been researching this a lot more lately, and this is a extremely hot topic right now, just for trying to be healthy. But when you see the amount of research that's out there or that appears to be out there about it, it seems like it should be the only way that a human eats. And apparently, and you might be able to clarify this, there is proof that it may help medically as well. So I wonder if you could talk about that. So the ketogenic diet, um, which people may or may know 
very little about. Probably worth state saying what the ketogenic diet is first. Yeah. <laughs> so, so broadly speaking, it's a way of eating that means that you are generating ketone bodies. Now, ketone bodies are a starvation fuel that your body uses. Your brain can use ketones and it can use glucose and it can't really use anything else to, to, to run on. So when you're running very low on carbs in particular, your body switches over and it uses ketones. Most people will recognise it because they'll, they'll, they'll realise that some people smell really hungry. And kids particularly, you know, oh, you smell hungry. That smell is the sort of the, 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 the body's response in a sense or the body's way of, uh, or, or our way of knowing that somebody switched over and, and then they're sort of mainly using ketones to generate. And the ketogenic diet is a way of, uh, of, of taking foods in so that you're more using ketones um, uh, than you are using glucose as a, as a fuel. It has some benefits, absolutely certainly does. There are some kids with very, very difficult to control epilepsies where using the ketogenic diet has provided much better seizure control, not always complete absence of seizures, but much better seizure control than they did with standard medical treatments. It is in addition to those medical treatments usually rather than as a, a, a treatment in and of itself, but it certainly can have some benefits. And that's, that's I believe, where it began in the 1920s or 1940s mm. or something as a treatment for child epilepsy. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and for the majority of children with epilepsies, um, they're disorders where you have um, unprovoked seizures. So you have fits, seizures, convulsions. Uh, the majority of people with epilepsies, and, and again, I'm going to pick that up, it's epilepsies. In the same way that cancer isn't a disease, epilepsy is not a disease. It's a series of, of, of conditions that will lead to, to seizures happening or happening more often. Yeah, so in, in the majority of children with epilepsies, the ketogenic diet doesn't have a place to, to play. The majority of children do not find the ketogenic diet to be a particularly nice thing to have. It, it, it cuts out certain food products. It, it severely limits other food products. To, to go to a kid's party and be on the ketogenic diet is a bit of a bloody nightmare. The nearest thing that we have long-term evidence for would be people that went on the Atkins diet for sort of um, uh, weight reduction primarily. Uh, and in the long-term follow-up of trials, that is sort of scientific experiments with large groups of people to see what was the best thing to do. The Atkins diet hasn't come out much better than any other form of diet in terms of long-term survival for grown-ups. Um, what seems to be the biggest thing in, in terms of, uh, of health benefits overall uh, for, 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 for people that were obese is to get weight off. And almost any method of getting weight off seems to be the good thing. It's not how, it's the weight going off that, that's important. There is currently um, some research going on as to whether the ketogenic diet could be of assistance in adding to the way of treating uh, certain brain tumours. And again, it's not all brain tumours and it's not clear. Uh, we're at the sort of the cellular level still really uh, to work out whether it might or might not make a difference and improving either the efficacy, the, the, the amount of success we have in anti-cancer treatment against certain brain tumours or whether it means that we don't get a better efficacy but maybe we could use lower doses so we have fewer side effects um, and that's something that is is currently being researched and being looked at 
there are some very, very small um, series that have been published that suggest that's the case. Um, but I would refer you back to the um, we didn't see breaking tweets to say that York Station was working today. Um, it's only ever the outrageous that comes through um, to start with, uh, and that's been demonstrated time and time and time again. I just wondered if, where, where has this explosion of ketogenic diet come from? Because it seems to be sort of the last two years that it's getting amazing claims for, for, for what it can do, health benefits, but it's actually, in, if you look at the makeup of it, so it is a, an extremely low carbohydrate diet. That is what the ketogenic diet is. And you it varies from body type to body type, but it's something like 30 grams to 50 grams of carbohydrates a day for, for an average human to to go into ketosis and to start switching to use ketones as a, as a, as a fuel. But it's not that different to the Atkins diet. And the Atkins diet was very much seen as a fad diet, and now it's kind of demonised. But th- there's not that much difference between the two. I think... The, it, I think it'd be really interesting if you could get a, 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 a dietitian um, that knows about this stuff and the history of it. My understanding uh, of the history of diet, um, and there's some great sociology that's been done in this area, is that food has enormous fashions um, and, uh, and that diet, as in weight loss diet, ways of working, ways of living diets come along very, very frequently and they go through phases of, of showing benefits and then falling off as the next one comes along. The, 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 the evidence beneath each of them, I think, is very firmly believed by very many people. There will then be a whole bunch of market-based quacks that, that, that want to push it for their own book or their own program or, or their own you know delivery of small silver packets of magic but the drive behind it I think is is something fundamental about wanting control wanting a way forward and wanting something a little bit magic um, that will make me healthier and me better than other people I've, I've, there's um I was just trying to find his name before you stopped stop talking but there's a there's a there's a chap in America that's doing a lot of research about uh, ketosis um, at the minute, and he was on Joe Rogan's podcast a, a couple of months ago, and uh, apparently they're, they're now testing um, external ketones, so additional ketones, so making a, a product that you can actually, um, you know, tablet form or a powder or whatever, and they're testing it with Navy SEALs. So when Navy SEALs dive a lot and they have to use rebreathers, there's a massive risk of them having an epileptic seizure. Well, having a seizure because they're, they're, they're rebreathing the oxygen. I don't, don't fully understand it. You probably understand it more than me. But they, they're at risk of a higher risk of seizures. And apparently, by taking these uh, extraneous ketones before they do that, it reduces their risk of seizures. Those are the sorts of experiments that, that people really need to do, but they need to do them in a proper fashion. So if you just have a bunch of people and you say, oh, well, we thought we had this many before, um, take magic pill. Oh, look, it looks like it's got a bit better. Mm, that's one way of doing it. And, and if you go from 90 out of 100 people had seizures down to 2 out of 100 people had seizures, then, bloody hell, it probably works. But if you go from, well, we think it was 90 before and now it's uh, 70, it, it's worked. 
What you might have is the problems of historical control and reporting bias, which are are slightly bullshitty terms. Um, But what it means is when we look backwards, we often see things a little bit differently than the truth is. And and that other sort of the, the, the tube station issue coming through. So what you ideally need to do is a randomized control trial. So you take your bunch of Navy SEALs and you give them more pills. Half the pills will be these external ketone pills. Half of them will have all the same sort of substances in them apart from the ketone bit. And you don't let the SEALs know, and you don't let the people handing out the, 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 the pills know. And then you count up how many seizures do you get in these two different groups. And then, if you show a difference between the two, then you've got proof that those pills are of importance. Lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of people do not want to put their products through that sort of testing because it largely shows that stuff does not work as well as if you just take a bunch of people and say, does, uh, does your cat prefer this cat food? You know, it, 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 it does not work as well. And those are the sorts of trials that provide us with the, the sound and substantial evidence that has meant we've been able to go from 10% leukemia survival to 90% leukemia survival. We didn't do that on the basis of somebody having a good idea uh, and then not doing the studies properly. That was actually going to be my next question. So what has happened in the last 10 years in, in, in your research field? You've just answered it there, right there on one point. Well, that's uh, a little bit more than 10 years. But yeah, by doing research in kids' cancers, we have gone from a sort of an overall survival pattern of somewhere around 30% of children with childhood cancer surviving up to just over 80% of children with childhood cancer surviving. Now, That's amazing. It, it, it's an astounding increase. It really, really is. Now, now, that does hide within it a very mixed bag. So there are some childhood cancer types, glioblastoma multiforme, GBM. It's a type of brain tumour that has not improved over the course of the whole of that time. There are around about 70 to 75% of children will die within the first year. By the time it gets out to five years, fewer than 5% of those diagnosed with that condition will be alive. Despite researching that over 35, 40 years, we have not made that any better. There are other conditions, high-risk neuroblastoma. The Bradley Lowry had high-risk neuroblastoma, where things have got better. We were at the 20% level. Now we're somewhere around the 40 to 50% level. It's not the same as 10 to 90, but things have got better by doing research. There are some where the survival is damn near 100%, and there are others where it isn't. And how have we done that? Well, we've done that by taking good ideas and trying them in these randomised control trials largely. And half the time, we've shown that the new good idea is good. And then that becomes what everybody gets. And half the time, we've shown that the new good idea actually doesn't work any better or works just about as well with more side effects. And and the other thing that we've done is this, this greater separation. So we haven't seen everything as a single bucket we're beginning to separate it out so that we can have some kids who have less done to them and therefore go on with fewer side effects in the long term. You can be a survivor of childhood cancer but still be somewhat debilitated by the treatments that were given for the rest of your life. So it is, it is literally medical evolution. It is the classical 
definition of evolution. It is. You, you, you're you trying two things and the best one wins, yep. essentially. So how come that particular one that you just spoke about, I've forgotten the name already. The GBM one. Yeah, how come that one has not got much better? Why is that so stubborn? Yeah, that is a, 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 a question that everyone working with GBM wants to know the answer to. <laughs> There's a lot of different sort of proposals. Firstly, it's actually quite difficult to get treatment into somebody's brain. The way your body is set up is that there's this thing called a blood-brain barrier. It's a sort of a, uh, it, it, it's not a layer of Gore-Tex. It, it, it's a, 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 a biological entity that tries to kick out things that look like they're a bit poisonous so that they don't get in and, and affect your brain. And so you need your drugs to be able to sneak through in a way that could get in there and do do something to that. You need the cells in the GBM to be able to take in these drugs and not spit them out again, to be able to be killed by them. And there's something about them that's inherently resistant to the drugs that we're currently using. And there's something about the evolution of the cancer itself. So if a cell survives, then it's one that survived being treated. And so it's a harder, nastier, more aggressive bastard than the rest of them that died off. And it's true that we don't fully understand the brain as well, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, there's there's also, well, I, I guess in lots of ways we don't understand any organ completely. <laughs> the brain's the one where I think it's most obvious that we, we don't really understand it. And, and again, it isn't our thing. The brain's made up of loads of different bits and different ways and different sections and has different cells within it. Um, and an access to the brain along the drug line um, along with understanding exactly how it works is is tricky and it's hard yeah it's so you take leukemia for example you've gone from 10 percent to 90 percent. how long did that take so the that sort of jump uh, occurred from say the 70s where it was 10 percent through to early 2000s 2010 where we're getting up to the 90 percent level so it took 30 years then so in another 30 years is it possible that nobody, or unless the few outliers, is it possible that nobody will, will die from leukemia? I think that's unlikely, but that's because I'm uh, horribly pessimistic and my entire <laughs> life is just wandering around with a black cloak and I'm basically saying, are you going to be out of a job in 30 years' time? It would be brilliant. <laughs> um, but but it's, it, it, it's likely that we'll be doing a, a different job. What we might be in a situation of doing is... I mean, there's, there's one group of, of childhood ALL now where half the deaths are because of leukaemia, but half the deaths are because of treatment. So what we will be doing is working very hard on reducing the number of children who die, not of their disease directly, but of the side effects of their disease. And it may be, it may be that we're up at the, the, the 95, 98% survival level, but but because the evolution happens, because these these little shitty things will work out our way around what we're doing, there will be some, I think, that, that escape and, and get by. And, and our treatments, hopefully over the next 30 years, will be focusing in two arms at once for the ones that we can treat very well and very effectively, reducing the amount of treatment or reducing the long-term complications of those treatments. And for the ones where we're not getting... Uh, adequate success where we're, where we're still having children die 
there we'll be increasing and changing and modifying the way we treat to make those more likely to survive. But because of the compound effect of technology as well, so we, we can't even possibly say what might happen even in 10 years. I mean, it could even happen in 10 years. It, it could. Um, I just don't see it because yeah. when I look at the gaps, the biggest leap was probably the 70s into the 80s where I think we went from about 10 to 50%. Why Why was that in the 70s or eight, and 80s? Because back in the 70s, we had sort of one drug and then we put three drugs together and, and three drugs actually managed to kill off the vast majority of those uh, leukaemia cells and they suddenly made a difference. And then through the 80s, we managed to increase the way that our antibiotics worked effectively and give transfusions safely so we could intensify the treatment and give bigger doses and give them closer together and then we started modifying with other little bits and and, and what we're getting is is not the now the 10 15 20 25 percent increases but the five three two percent increases and the gaps in survival improvement are still happening we are still getting better but the gap is getting smaller so what was a 5% increase over the 10 years previously is now a, a 3% increase and it's becoming incrementally more difficult to take those little bits forward. So could we say 50 years time then? Oh, I'm going to keep pushing this point. So 50 years time or 100 years time, is it actually possible that we could see nearly the end of cancer? Could, could you see that happening? I can see that for very many cancers, we will have effective ways of treating them. And it might be that what we have is not treatment in the sense that we have for majority of children's cancers now, which is where we've got rid of them. It might be that for a series of cancers, what we have is a medicine, a pill, a potion, a puffer, a thing that you rub on your forehead that means that it no, it doesn't cause you any problems. It keeps it under control. Um, and and you die of something else instead. I still can't see the eradication of all cancers from the face of all humanity. It'd be nice if it happened, though, wouldn't it? Yeah, it would. It would. It, I mean, it genuinely would be good to to be able to turn up at work and go. We've Do done you know it. What? We've done it. Yeah. Bloody hell. Yeah. Yeah. I'm. I'm just because you said in the seventies and the eighties it was mainly one thing that changed it I guess you, somebody I guess it was more than one person but somebody figured out that we could put these three drugs together and we'd make a super drug there's potential in the next hundred years for that to happen maybe once or even twice and that one discovery could completely change the entire the entire situation of, of what what you know about cancer and how to better fix it the way that I guess I look at it is that back in the 70s, um, what we had was people trying to pick apples off a tree. And, 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 and before that, what we'd been doing was kicking hopelessly at the trunk and occasionally an apple would drop off. And then somebody decided to look upwards and start pulling down the ones that were, were easily accessible. Um, and now what we've got is that we've taken damn near every apple off that tree and the ones we've got at the top are too small too difficult to reach some of them are invisible um we 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 can't get there and i'm seeing the gaps getting smaller and smaller the improvements getting smaller and smaller and yet in some areas 
some areas we'll find the thing that makes the difference but I can't see that being a universal increase in the same way that it was between not using cytotoxics and using cytotoxics we might find that we get another CML situations or CML chronic myeloid leukemia is a condition of adults largely kids sometimes get it but but by adults largely and it's nearly all driven by a single genetic change within the code of a set of white cells and somebody found a medicine um, imatinib that, that that got itself stuck in that genetic change turned off the accelerator it changed the face of CML sort of overnight over the course of five or ten years it changed it from a condition that was a slow, not particularly rapid way of killing you, but it did, unless you could have a bone marrow transplant, into something that is completely controllable for decades and decades and decades and decades. That hasn't happened in any other cancer type that I know of. Is there any of the research that you've been a part of or that you know widely that has become mainstream in other areas of medical um, treatment or anything like that? So anything you've learnt in child cancer that's become normal in other things that wasn't 20 years ago, 30 years ago? Yeah, so um, within kids' cancer, the the incorporation of of, of actually doing research on the ground floor has become something that, that didn't happen in other areas of children at all and now does. Now nearly every area of children's medicine has some degree of research done in it from the premature neonates right the way through every other thing that can happen to kids. Research is happening. So that's a big change that sort of flowed out from childhood cancer. When you look at the anti-sickness agents, the majority of those anti-sickness agents were first used within children's cancer and have then gone out to lots and lots of other areas where children have sickness um, caused by all sorts of different things. But that sort of flowed outwards as well. And a lot of the work on painkillers and the use of strong analgesia, uh, strong painkillers within children's cancer has then flowed outwards into other areas and and sort of the the methodological techniques the way of doing these trials has sort of flowed outwards from children's cancer as well there isn't a sort of a a a single agent Mm, no actually there is one thing that sort of flowed outwards and it sort of came not directly from children's cancer so there's a um a, a series of uh, sticky up things on cells called 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 antigens. So they're, they're things that stick up on the outside of cells, and they vary between the different types of cells. One of them that's very common on a subset of your white cells that produce antibodies is called CD20. I don't know why it just is. Don't even think it was the twentieth that they discovered, uh, and it doesn't look anything like a C or a D. Um, but there's this thing that's stuck up called CD20, and somebody produced an external antibody. That, that mops up CD20 cells and kills them off so that you can't have them replicating because they've all been killed. And there are some sorts of lymphomas that are CD20 positive uh, and this drug, rituximab, is used widely to kill off those and it means that you can get better kill of certain non-Hodgkin's lymphomas at a lower level of cytotoxic chemotherapy so you can have fewer side effects when you use this drug. That drug then sort of flowed down from adults into children's, where it seems to be really quite effective. And then people started thinking, well, should we use it in conditions where 
antibodies are the problem. So, so if somebody's got antibodies directed against their own platelets, platelets are little things in the blood that stop you bruising or bleeding. If we use it in that condition where that, oh, oh look, it cures that one. Oh, I wonder about all the weird rheumatological conditions that have really bizarre names after 17th century Finnish physicians. I wonder, I wonder if, um, I wonder if we, bugger me, it works. And there's sort of been a flow outwards of the, the use of rituximab into many, many, many other areas. Um, and then a development through adults and through children's of other sorts of disease modifying agents where you're sort of going back to where you think the source is. Maybe not the cause, but where the source of the problem is and trying to mop it up using a variety of things. And rituximab would be a really good example of when that's happened um, in children's or through cancer spilling out into non-cancer areas. I find it fascinating that a drug can be developed like that. So I, I, see, I see a lot of innovation, particularly on the internet, you know, that kind of thing. But making a drug that then can affect somebody's body positively or negatively in a particular way is, is fascinating. That, that I mean, where do you even start with that kind of thing? How do you even figure out what needs to go inside that thing? Yeah, so there's broadly, um, you can sort of think about two main approaches that are being used. Um, one is the sort of the, the, the bookshot approach and one is the highly super-specialised science approach. The, the bookshot approach basically says, okay, so we've got this particular compound that works to do stuff. Um, give it to a clever chemist, uh, wiggle that arm, that arm, stick a ring on that, take a ring off that. Um, have we got any... Blue, blue flashy bits we can stick on it uh, and then just generate a whole load of other compounds that are similar but not quite the same and then just splatter them around and see what they do this is at a cellular level it's not a deal you know, we don't just take it out on the street and if you've gone to sainsbury's one day you're getting a new compound um Random, uh, randomized double blind tests yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll give you a fiver off your shopping if <laughs> um uh so so there's that sort of approach, which is the 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 what's called a high throughput approach. So, that, so they do this with hundreds and hundreds of compounds and hundreds and hundreds of situations to see if that makes a difference. The other is the um, the the one that, that that appeals more is the designer approach. So what you take is you take an understanding of what the the the, the changes within the genes or the proteins that cause disease are, and then you try and make a compound that will fill that hole or we'll turn that off or we'll twist it the wrong way so that it, it won't work properly. And then when you've got that compound that works at the, 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 the sort of subcellular, the protein level, then what you've got to do is, is stick things on it so that it will actually get into the cell, for example. And then maybe you've got to stick things on it that mean it can be taken as a pill or, or, or able to go in as an injection or, or have something on it that means it isn't broken down by the body that recognises it as a foreign substance. So then you've got that sort of designer approach um, that can be used to, to drug development as well. Um, and, and both of those approaches are being used um, for standard sorts of drugs. Currently, the, the sort of the high throughput compound discovery seems to be uh, winning on the which is best score. But there are also sort of completely novel approaches, well, completely novel approaches, um, that, that, that go down other lines as well. So, for example, there are a series of therapies that are being developed where you take someone's own immune system, you pull out the white cells that, that are part of that immune system, 
um, and in a laboratory you train them to kill off that particular person's type of cancer and then put it back in them again. You train white blood cells. Yeah. Um, see, I think the way it happens is you, you take them out by a, a massive great cannula, a big tube in the body, separate them off, and then you pass them to a very angry goblin um, that beats them up until they decide that they know which bits to kill um, and then reluctantly lets them go back into the body again. Um, I imagine it's not like training a dog where you, you, you put them on a leash and you give them a treat every now and again. Yeah, no, I think it's more violent than that. Um, <laughs> yeah, so so, so they, the, 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 there are a variety of, of sort of techniques using uh, different ways of growing the cells and killing off ones that aren't doing the right thing and selectively surviving the ones that have got receptors that go for this particular, this, that or the other. So they do learn then well you, it, it's, it's more of an evolutionary right. thing than a, than a, than, a, uh, than a dog learning um, uh, type of approach yeah. um, and we're using that to try and see if we can use that as a new way of treating stuff and and within leukemia within the difficult to treat lymphoblastic leukemias it seems like that can make an enormous difference to some people there's a variation on that where you take white cells that have been trained up and then clonally multiply them so you get them and you make billions of that one and you put it back into other people so it's not the person's own white cells it's white cells from other people but are generated and are, and are, are made to go off and kill that particular type of cancer um, and, and that's another way that people have been trying to do that to, to get those cancers done um, and that's very different than using cytotoxics it's different than using radiotherapy it's different than using surgery um, it's, a, it's a version of immunotherapy and immunotherapy itself has seven, eight, nine different major flavours and that's one of them. Wow, wow that's fascinating. I, di- I didn't even know that that kind of thing happened, that people actually take white blood cells and train, well not train them, but evolutionise them, I guess, mm. in, into a particular way. Yeah, and, and, and what we're seeing is that it seems to work for some things and doesn't work for others. And that makes sense because there isn't a one size fits all answer. If there was, so I'm, I'm going to go on to just talking about being healthy in general, and from what what you've learned over the over your entire career, if you was to kind of tell people to do particular things, and because as as we know, some cancers are a lifestyle choices, or they sometimes happen because of lifestyle choices that they make. What is the kind of top level advice that you'd give somebody if they wanted to avoid? Well, generally just being unhealthy, but also obviously cancer. Yeah, so so general health, don't smoke. And then I'd say, don't smoke. And, <laughs> and probably don't smoke. It's really, really, really important. Just don't smoke. The other thing would be to balance your exercise and your calorie load um, so that you were not underweight and not overweight. Both of them seem to be associated with being generally not particularly healthy and healthy in a physical sense but also healthy and in an emotional sense the other things would be about making sure that you enjoyed your life as much as you could and there are a variety of ways of of improving that um, but it's not often about you it's about the things around you uh, and so there are enormous structural changes that need to happen for an individual person it's really it's don't smoke don't eat too much, make sure you exercise, put sunscreen on when you go outside so that you don't get skin cancer, um, and don't listen to very loud rock music because that buggers your ears up. Oh, I like doing that bit, though. 
Yeah. Oh, and the other thing that's really important um, is uh, uh, don't shag people unsafely. <laughs> um, because there's there's all sorts of bad things that can happen. I mean, um, your grandma will be upset for a start. Um, you might get a drippy willy or or, or, or sore bits, and, and that's not particularly comfortable or pleasant. It's embarrassing to get it treated in the first place. Um, so, yeah, that would be another top tip. But so, so just taking the, the dot smoke bit, how come some people don't get lung cancer and some people do get lung cancer? Because everything is a chance, not a definite. You can cross the motorway and not die. That is not advice. <laughs> but it's just about chance. So if you cross the motorway, you might survive. If you cross the motorway four times a day, then you have a higher chance of being killed. If you cross the motorway at two in the morning, you have a better chance than if you cross the motorway at nine. Well, actually, nine is probably safer than, 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 even still, particularly on the M62 car park. Um, but it's it's all about chance. And, so, you know, crossing the motorway if you're using a wheelchair is going to be more dangerous than crossing the motorway if you're not using a wheelchair. So, so there will be individual personal things about your chance of picking up the cells that have been abused and uh, genetically copied wrong and there will be chance things about the amount that you've taken um, when you've taken it what the rest of your body was doing at the time is, so is there kind of a, a definite percentage range in terms of you know in smoking so say you smoked 20 a day for 40 years is there a, a kind of a definite percentage thing to that that increases your chance of lung cancer so the epidemiologist will be able to tell you what the average is <laughs> yeah uh, and we know that it is dose related so the more you've smoked for longer, the more your bad chance is. And it's not just cancer, it's not just lung cancer. It's other cancers as well. Bladder cancer is, uh, is linked to, can- to, uh, to smoking as well. Um, the, probably the strongest thing is to do with stroke and heart attack, actually, and peripheral vascular disease. So that's where your arteries get furred up on the inside. And that's the thing that people get uh, feet cut off for and uh, impotence. That's another uh, big problem that goes with, uh, with smoking. Um, so... So, but it's a, but but the body works on a chance basis. So, the more risky things you do, the more chance you have of bad stuff happening. If you've got Russian roulette with one bullet, it's not sensible. But Russian roulette with five bullets is is much less sensible still. So, so what about beer? Because in terms of beer's great. <laughs> into you know, there's there's so much. I mean, there's, there's always conflicting advice out there. One week people are saying bacon's amazing for you. The next week saying it gives you a heart attack. The next week salt's bad for you. Salt's good for you, etc., etc. But beer's an interesting one because there's obviously there's mass-produced beer um, that is a little bit like mass-produced bread, I guess. But then there's artisan ales and things like that that don't really have much in them. They're just natural ingredients. Yeah, and and when people talk about natural, I, I think about belladonna. Um, it's a natural agent that kills you. Natural isn't safe. Natural is the saber-toothed tiger. Natural is falling off a cliff. Natural doesn't mean safe. There's an awful lot that might be true, but there's an awful lot of publication bias. There's an awful lot of how do we know this difference. The thing about the positive mindset, people who report a positive mindset seem to do better than those that report a negative mindset in cancer. And then when you separate it out, you see some things differently. Um, you see that they're more likely to have turned up. You see that they're more likely to have had fewer side effects in the first place. So carry on with the doses being higher, more likely to have uh, 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 have gone in 
for having side effects treated and so on. So there's an awful lot of stuff that, that might be an epiphenomenon. That is, it's not that people who drink artisanal beer are more likely to survive because of their artisanal beer. It might be that they're rich, middle-class people, and rich, middle-class people are more likely to survive than poor people that aren't middle-class. Actually, when you look at that sort of social class difference, across nearly all conditions, there is a gradient. Those people who have less money are more likely to die and have shorter lives than those people who have more money. One of the very, very few areas where it appears to be flat is in children's cancer. There isn't, within the UK I should say, very clearly within the UK, there isn't a social class gradient within children's cancer in the UK. There is in America. That's interesting in America. That actually brings me to something else. Um, I watched a film recently called The Stanford Prison Experiment. I don't know if you've heard of it. You've probably heard of the experiment. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes, the school kids. Yeah, they, they, yeah, they basically yeah. take... I actually spoke about this in my last episode, so I'll briefly go over it again. But they took 10, uh, 20 university students, I think it was, who went to Stanford. Um, they picked 10 to randomly they picked 10 to be guards and randomly they picked 10 to be prisoners and that showed all kinds of uh, psychological biases etc 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 and I was talking about this on my last podcast and, and Ivor the chap that I was talking to said well wasn't there some research about America being in some kind of bubble that people don't really understand in terms of a lot of things so th- there was a lot of American research done 40 years ago and 30 years ago that was that has been discredited since because they see America as some kind of a bubble. I, I, I don't know what the truth is behind that. I don't know if you can enlighten me on any of that. I think that what we've seen quite a lot is a failure to replicate experiments. Um, and that's been being sort of talked about recently, this idea that, that something's been shown and then it hasn't been shown again and again and again. This, I think, is, is often a feature of publication bias. It, you get... A, actually a chance finding and you promote the hell out of it because it was a really really good thing and then when you do it again and again and again and again and again it isn't the case if you throw dice out of the back of your hand it might come down with three doubles mm. it doesn't mean that's why it's just chance but you can promote that idea really really widely I think there are some things that are structurally different about America um, they do not provide the same children's cancer care to every child Whereas in the UK, more or less, we do because of the way that we're set up. And that's why we don't see a large social class gradient, in fact, almost undetectable social class gradient. If you look at diabetes, which is not provided in quite the same way, there's a social class gradient in side effects and problems. There's a massive social class gradient in obesity in particular when you look in kids, um, which is to do with the way that we set up our society. Um, we're slightly overcoming that in kids' cancer. That's that's all we're doing. I, I think ju- not just the social class thing, but this the body is so different. Every single person's body is so different that it must make it really difficult to actually work out which bits have affected that experiment and which bits haven't and which bits are unique to that person. Do, do, you, know, do you know what I mean? Yeah, and, and that's why what we can only ever do is talk, oh, from my point of view, we can only ever do is talk in chances and populations. So the idea behind taking your Navy SEALs and giving half of them at random the real pill and half of them giving them the fake pill, then what you're hoping is that what chance does is it evens out the 
seizure potential of those people so that the seals are evenly balanced in their seizure potential they're evenly balanced in the depth to which they go they're evenly balanced in their previous experiences so these major prognostic factors the things that are most likely to drive that are then evened out by chance between the two arms um, but we will never know for a single person whether it was the first dose of chemotherapy or they needed all 146 doses of chemotherapy that really, really made the difference for that one person. And we have to go on that because we can't know any differently. Yeah, because on the SEALs example, they're obviously usually fitter and stronger than a normal person. Mentally, they're stronger as well. Uh, and you get it the same in anywhere. Some people are stronger than others mentally and physically. Some people may be underweight, some people may be overweight and you can't change those kind of things, can you? No, no, and a lot of those things will, will, will have to be sort of balanced out and understood. So if the pill works in SEALs, it doesn't necessarily mean that it will work in North Sea divers working in a different environment, doing a slightly different thing. It might be that it only works because they're super fit. Um, there, there's all sorts of things that, that where you've got to think, where was this experiment done? If we move this idea into a different population or into a different group, is it likely to apply? Might it apply differently? Um, within children's research, health research generally, we see a lot of things are being developed in adults first. And sort of that's fine because adults are more easier to kill off. They, you know, nobody cares quite so much. Um, and there's more of them about. Um, whereas poorly kids, we'd, we'd like really for the majority of substances to be sure that it's relatively safe in big humans and then start to use it in small humans rather than it being used for the first time ever in any human at all ever and that being a kid, uh, which generally speaking is, is thought not to be a great idea. So you do have to think about populations and you've got to sort of test it out in different areas to see if it really makes a difference or not. It's surprising how little difference it makes often and that actually even though people are big, tall, male, female, different coloured skin, different obesity sort of amounts, different ways of looking at the world, it's surprising how similarly the insides of them works broadly speaking and how you can transfer that information across. I was going to say, has, has there been any example of phenomena like that where you've done one thing one place and then it's not replicated as expected? Does that happen? Oh yeah, yeah, it absolutely does. Um, and so if you look to see at the use mm, Are you going to say a big complicated word again? Um, trying to think of an example that works well that's very straightforward to understand. <laughs> so let's go down the yeah, okay. So, um, yeah, no, that's absolutely the case. You, there, there are things that don't replicate across. Um, take, for example, uh, you know those roundabout things that you see on kids' play parks where you mm. put the kid on it and you push them round on the outside and the kid goes, yep. Yeah? Yep. Yeah, put a 45-year-old on that. <laughs> Make them keep their eyes open. Now do the same thing. They're unlikely to be going, Wee! <laughs> They're more likely to be going, stop it, stop it, let me get off. <laughs> There's something about the idiocy of children that means that spinning round, feeling like you're going to throw up all the time, um, is, is incredibly exciting and enthusiastic. Um, but, you know, when you've grown up a bit and you've realised that that's horrible, 
you don't do that. There's just something different about that. And when you look at the size of kids that seem to enjoy that sort of thing, admittedly there'll be some really nervy kids, but 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 they all seem to enjoy it until they sort of hit puberty. And then, then I'm sure it's not to do with your gonads growing, but there's something else there that means when you're through puberty, you do not have that same experience of that sensation of nausea and vomiting and so on. And when we've looked at uh, some of the, the medical cannabinoids, so drugs that were developed from cannabis plants, it's not cannabis, it's a, a, a drug that uses some of the, 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 sort of the, the active ingredients within those plants, we find that many children and teenagers in particular find that experience of having those as an anti-sickness agent to be relatively pleasant and they quite like it and it's it's all right but then when you use it with older adults they really dislike that experience and there's something about the way that it's interpreted in different populations doesn't change how it works at a cellular level but it changes how it works within that body and um, so there are things that that differ across uh, across populations in that sense. There's some work that was done that showed that different antihypertensive drugs, ones that are used to lower blood pressure, work differently broadly in the white American and black American populations, probably because of inherent genetic differences at the, the cellular level to do with how certain uh, drugs are m- metabolized that are more likely to be present, some enzymes that are more likely to be present in one group than another group. So there's a little bit that's around there, but a lot of stuff is is found, but then on replication, it's found probably to be a chance variation. So there was some thought that certain chemotherapy agents were manipulated differently in women and men, and in, in young men and, and young women, and that arose from one study. And then it was looked at in a pooled, bringing together many, many, many other studies that looked at the same thing, and it was found not to be the case most likely that what was initially discovered was just a chance finding it was just the three doubles being rolled at the same time it it wasn't a real thing so in terms of kids and adults in experiencing sickness is that a physiological thing or is that a psychological thing or or, or do you not know it's really difficult to be able to separate out the the two things as it's it is experiential so you can't really do the physiology on it and you can't really just do psychology on it. Um, it's unclear what the difference is, but it's it is a difference. Um, and by telling a grown up to just sit back and enjoy it, or screaming at a child to act like a grown up, it won't work. Um, just knowing that it's different and trying to work with it differently seems to be the best way forward. Or it could be a sociological thing. You know, the old, old thing you socialise into a particular way of acting. You get to a certain age, you should not be acting like a child anymore and yeah it, it, it might be I've, I, I don't know whether we've had any sort of wolf child type experiments and, and taken people that were uh, were brought up in a cave by sheep and uh, and brought them out of Derby and, and, and put them onto a, a whizzy round thing and seeing what they do yeah I want to just just to finish up I found some random Cora questions are, are you familiar with Cora? I'm not no Oh, you'll love Cora. So Cora is, it's spelled Q-U-O-R-A. It is a website that's full of people asking questions and people answer them. So I go on there quite often and I answer people's random questions and people people ask good stuff and people ask random stuff. So there's every topic on the universe you can think on there. And I've found a couple of ones there that 
I want to, as you are a doctor, I want to get some of your answers to these. So some of them are a bit random and some of them are actually quite good. So you're getting nervous now, aren't you? Yeah, very. (laughs) How can I develop a great personality and take care of my body and looks? Oh, that's that's very easy. It's it's, it's doing a daily or weekly podcast um, and working in the web design industry. I think that's the, the clear answer to that one. <laughs> As a doctor, how would you answer that? Um, I'd try and avoid it and pass it on to somebody else. Um, the, the 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 taking care of your body thing is 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 don't smoke, don't eat too much, make sure you do some exercise on a regular basis, and try to see the good things in the universe because doing that seems to make you better uh, feel better than other things in terms of how do I develop a great personality and good looks well basically you need to live in a place where either you are privileged so you live in this particular sort of area of the world and if you're a white bloke then you are privileged over and above anybody that is not a bloke and not white Um, or you work towards an understanding that these things are M real and placed upon you from outside and instead uh, seek things deeper. <laughs> Very uh, existential answer there. What are the habits that you adopted that made you a healthier person? Um, have you ever have you ever not been a healthy person? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I sort of became much healthier um, having a dog come into our life. Um, so uh, we've got a, a, a Labrador, uh, she's about nine years old now, um, and f- from about her being nine months old, I've taken her for walks more or less once or twice a day, um, almost continually, uh, and that is the habit um, that has turned me into a, a much healthier human being um, than I was before. There's something about dog walking, and there are observational studies that look at it it's probably a very very good form of exercise you can't go i'm too tired i'm not going to the gym tonight when you've got a dog that's threatening to poo on your carpet (laughs) yeah yeah that's i've read lots of things before about it's just the consistency that matters doesn't matter what you're doing just find a thing that you enjoy and consistently do it yeah because if you do exercise every couple of weeks or whatever you might as well just not really bother it's the 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 consistency that really matters yeah if you're into extreme crochet and you go out to the edge of cliffs to do your crocheting then walking there's the thing that that will get you there do you think people in comas can hear Coma is a very broad word that is used to mean an awful lot of things by a variety of people. So this is just like cancer then? I think it's even more than that. It's one that doesn't have a clear understood definition by non-medical people. Um, I wouldn't use the word coma when I was speaking to some other medical or healthcare type. I would use it to give an impression to people that weren't medical about what was happening. So something that gets talked about is medically induced coma. And what that means is somebody's been anaesthetised. We know from a vast amount of experience of the way that people are anaesthetised, and that might be on an intensive care unit, that it shuts down sensory processing. Uh, And I don't believe that people who have that level of sensory sensory shutdown within their brain can hear. 
Now, there are some people who've had a traumatic brain injury that has meant that they've shut down for years and years and years, months and months and months, and then their brain restarts for some reason. Yeah, maybe that's an area that they can hear. Um, the whole area of can you actually remember your dreams or not comes into it, and that's got a sociological flavour to it, and is it really real or not? So I'm not sure that's a question that can be answered, but I would say that if you're in a medically induced coma, it is highly unlikely that you can hear. Interesting answer. And then finally, what should be my first priority, studying regularly or exercising and eating healthy? Um, you should combine the two um, by making sure that as you're exercising and, uh, and, and eating regularly, you listen to educational podcasts um, and then uh, whilst you're having your tea, uh, make sure you've got your revision cards organised. <laughs> really depends on your life uh, at the time. If you've got your GCSEs in four weeks, then do your GCSEs now. You will not get another chance. Um, if you're just studying stuff because you just like stuff, then I would say eat healthy, go out and do exercise, and they shouldn't uh, clash um, with you learning stuff. It's an interesting thing, though, about the power of uh, eating healthy and exercising and what it has on your thinking ability, uh, amount of sleep and other things like that as well. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think that the the, the way that that works is, is not clearly understood. This is a, a really good example, actually, of where it's different between the observational studies, that is, looking to see what people do and what they feel, and the trials. So if you do observational studies, people who do more exercise, who eat healthier, who report eating healthier, have better mental health. If you take people that have depression, mild to moderate depression, and you give them information about exercise, about eating healthy, support them with sort of not psychologically directed therapy, but lifestyle directed therapies, people who get that don't do a lot better than people that don't get that. There's something about what was it that allowed me to change the way I was thinking, to eat more healthily, to get out, to do all these positive self-directed things that then made me better in some way versus it being the thing itself. And it's really difficult to separate those things out. I mean, I would highly promote the idea of exercise and uh, and, 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 and thinking good things and, and, and eating well um, because that, I think, is associated with people that are happier. Whether it's truly causative, I don't really know. I think one thing that I've read a lot about is um, probably about maybe six years ago or something, I was quite overweight. Um, I was 18 stone something, 18 stone four, 18 stone four pounds. I always remember because the day I got on those scales and I saw it and I said, I'm going to change my life. Yeah, I just, I'm too fat. That's it. I'm going to lose weight. And from that day on, I, I just did it. And I, I think that is what often happens. And you probably see it as a doctor as well, that you can tell people all the advice in the world you can tell them that this is the right thing you should be doing, this is the thing you should be doing, but until they want to do it, they won't do it. And until somebody becomes the thing that you're telling them to be, they won't do it. I think that's the case for some things, certainly. Um, and 
there's something about that that has with it a sort of feeling that it's um, a moral choice almost. You know, you've, you, you made the choice to do that. People who don't make that choice, are they, are they morally inferior? There's something that sort of sits underneath that. And, and that's often not really the case. There may be a whole host of other things for different people in different situations where they cannot make that choice in the same way. To, to offer somebody A and B where if for a bunch of people, um, let's take men, it's very straightforward to take A and wander around and, 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 and wear glasses and go bald and, and take a bunch of different people, women, it's much more difficult to wander around and be bald than it is as a woman than a man. And and that's not a moral choice. That's something about the society and the way that we men are privileged over women that makes that difference. Hmm. I think it becomes even more complicated, particularly on the healthy thing. There's so much conflicting advice out there. Just on the health, there's so much conflicting advice. Like I said, bacon is good for you one week, bad for you the next week. And if you are a person who knows you want to be healthy or you want to prevent particular diseases in a later life, it's so difficult if you've got no interest in that kind of thing. It's so difficult to know what is correct and to stick with it. It is. It, and and the other thing that plays into that is the difficulty in knowing what's correct because it's promoted and not necessarily done in a an unbiased and fair and, and evaluated way. But also the idea that what we knew 10 years ago was what we knew 10 years ago. And we may actually know different stuff now. Um, things change, our knowledge changes. We can appreciate things in a, in, in a different model as time goes on. And I don't think we're, nat- well, we're not naturally born with an ability to understand science. I don't think we're particularly well taught about appreciating the qualities of research that make some research more likely to tell us the truth than other types of research. I think we're not born with that scientific mindset because we've got so many psychological biases because we, you know, our brain's so complicated. We can't spend all day thinking about all these things all the time. There's so many shortcuts in our brain that we use most of them most of the time. So a, a scientific mindset of saying, that's not right, that's not right, or it's right now, but it didn't used to be. That's a very difficult process for people to take on board, especially yep. if you were, if, if you maybe you're 50 years old now and you've been told all your life that fat is really bad for you. Suddenly it isn't, and there's been tons of research to say it's not, and cholesterol's not bad for you either, and it doesn't cause heart attacks. But if you've known that all your life and you don't have that kind of mindset, that's incredibly difficult to change. Yeah, and, and behaviour change, understanding change is, is really, really difficult. And you're right, we have to run on heuristics, we have to run on mental shortcuts all the time because we can't spend every second going, oh, hang on, is that glass really there? <laughs> you know, we, we have to run on shortcuts. Um, but for big questions and for uncertainties, I think the majority of people don't have a toolkit that they can use to try and separate out the, the wheat from the chaff, the, the, the good from the bad. Um, and that's something that we're not particularly great at teaching. Kids are getting much, much better at it from a media point of view about seeing the way that people are constructing their 
images and their stories. And they might well be doing that because they're using the same techniques to construct them their own. So there's there's something of a of a way of how do we get this idea of scientific criticism to be acceptable so that then kids, grown-ups, anyone um, can can put a critical eye on stuff that comes through the media rather than believing the uh, the red wine is good, red wine is bad, flip flop. How how can we teach that in schools? That that is the thing that you need to solve in your research. How can you dilute everything down, everything you've learned all these years, the most important scientific methodologies, and dilute it down to the normal person? Yeah, and communicating and engaging with science and what science means and and what health messages mean is certainly a, a very very important thing. There's a few people that are trying to do this. There's a campaign uh, called uh, Sense About Science that is uh, promoting those sorts of ideas. There's the Ask for Evidence healthcare campaign and testing treatments is a, a very readable ebook that's available for free. And I think you can buy a, 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 an actual copy on right, real paper and everything as well. They try as and goes through and explains things in a, a, a normal, a normal sort of language way of doing it. There are programs uh, for for taking people that are interested in doing this sort of thing uh, as school kids for students uh, and putting them out there and most universities have somebody in a a public engagement or a a public understanding of science role where they are uh, hopefully helping the media understand science in a way that can promote it in in a fairer and less biased way the challenge is always that unbiased stuff is usually less sexy and less saleable than biased stuff um, uh, and, and and that's something that we'll carry on having to fight against I think Is there any other final things you want to point people to or uh, to learn more about you or to learn more about what you're up to and anything like that? Uh, if you're really interested in understanding more about childhood cancer and research generally, um, then it's always great to have a look at the childhood cancer charities that exist in the UK that have lots and lots of really good, helpful information and support. Um, and we talk a lot about evidence-based medicine and understanding science and, and its application to healthcare um, within a blog that gets written on the Archives of Diseases of Childhood site. Uh, and that's a, a way of understanding the mind of paediatricians if you ever need to do that. Wow. What a episode. I think you can... You can't not agree with me here. That was absolutely fascinating. Some of the insights that Bob shared in that episode was things I'd never even considered in my entire life. Things like training blood cells. Who thought that you could train blood cells? It's not quite like training dogs, like he explains in the episode, but you can actually train blood cells to do particular things. And I also found it really fascinating how they design drugs and that the process that people go through with that yeah, they're just the whole conversation was fascinating. I love talking to people, experts from their field, in something as far away as from what I do in a day-to-day life. I find it truly, truly fascinating. So that was season one, episode two with Bob Phillips. I've put a bunch of links in the show notes for this episode about Bob Phillips and you can find out more about him and some of the causes that he supports and things like that. So if you go over to interestpodcast.com and click on the Bob Phillips episode, you'll see more about that. The next episode of Interesting Conversations is up in another couple of weeks time. That's going to be November the 12th. So keep an eye out for that then. And until then, 
All that remains me to say is goodbye for another two weeks and I will see you then.